You'll have to forgive me, I came down with a cold this weekend, so I sound nasally and rough. Bear with me, I'll do my best to get out of your way. Just give me a few moments and I'll be back to my seat. As Marshall said, I'm Jared McClain, if you don't know me. I do Young Life here, I've been in Lexington for the last uh, five years or so. Um, and I've been a member here since 2016 at the old campus, so it is a pleasure to be with you all. Um, let me pray first, and then we'll get in. Our gracious God and Father in heaven, we thank you for your goodness and mercy towards us. Lord, we thank you for your Son, Jesus Christ, and all that he has done on our behalf. And Father, we thank you for your spirit. And it's that same spirit that I ask that you give me as we preach your word, that you would help me to speak the truth and nothing but the truth. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Psalm 47 is our text tonight. I'll go ahead and read that for us. It should be in your bulletin. Psalm 47, starting in verse 1. Clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with loud songs of joy. For the Lord, the Most High, is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. He subdued peoples under us, the nations under our feet. He chose our heritage for us, the pride of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the sound with, a tr with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises. Sing praises to our king, sing praises. For God is the king of all the earth, sing praises with a psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the peoples gather as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. The word of the Lord. It was April 3rd, 1968. A large group of men and women and children had all gathered and packed themselves into Mason Temple. It's a historic African-American church situated right in the heart of Memphis, Tennessee. Memphis was a major stumping ground for the civil rights movement of the 1960s. Weeks leading up to this April 3rd night, there was a strike going on called the Memphis Sanitation Strike. Folks in Memphis were protest, protesting unequal pay, horrible work conditions, and the death of two workers, Echo Cole and Robert Walker. These men were killed by garbage compactors. Things got so bad that the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had to make a visit to Memphis to speak at this rally. Up to 3,000 folks gathered that night inside Mason Temple to hear the Reverend Dr. King. Outside of his famous and powerful I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C., this speech on this night would arguably be his second most powerful speech of his life and ministry. In what would be later named as his I Have Seen the Mountaintop speech, Dr. King 
had come to encourage and empower a movement of equality and justice. And how did he encourage and empower this humbled and lowly folk? He preached God's word. Reverend King shared with these folks a vision, a glorious vision of a king who would one day wipe away all tears, all injustice and evil in this so-called wicked world. It was a vision that captured the hearts and imagination of his listeners, which inevitably gave them hope of a new reality. And what is most significant about this vision Reverend King shared that night was that it was one that predates himself. Here's a small excerpt of that speech. Well, I don't know what will happen now. We've got some difficult days ahead. But it really doesn't matter with me now because I've been to the mountaintop. And I don't mind. Like anybody, I would like to live a long life. Longevity has its place. But I'm not concerned about that now. I just want to do God's will. And he's allowed me to go up to the mountain. And I've looked over and I've seen the promised land. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the promised land. So I'm happy tonight. I'm not worried about anything. I'm not fearing any man, for my own eyes have seen the coming glory of the Lord. Dr. King is describing a place where all is well. He shared the only hope he knew with the hopeless people. He's describing the kingdom of God. His method to embolden the people on the fringes of society was one of prophetic preaching. He didn't take a page out of the world's playbook. He didn't feed these folks political ideologies or self-help quotes that would simply make them happy only for a matter of seconds. No, 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 he gave these folks real and sustaining hope. And as we come to our text in Psalm 47, I think that's precisely what we see. Hope in the form of a song. What I want to put before you this evening is this. The nature of God's kingdom is nothing like the nature of this world. So first, let's see the nature of our king who runs this kingdom. This psalm is littered with language that describes what type of king God is compared, is compared to the proverbial kings of this world. Notice how the songwriter portrays God in verses 2 and 3. And then we see similar languages, language in verses 8 and 9. The songwriter is describing God's nature, which is transcendent. It's over all of the earth. It's a transcendence that surpasses all things. It overcomes all things. Then th that, if that's the case, then it would make God triumphant over all that we know, all that we live in. Okay, let me put it another way. Nobody or no thing is messing with God. Politicians cannot compete with him. Millionaires cannot keep up with him. Academia cannot outthink him. Governments cannot erase him. Oh, but the psalmist isn't done yet. 
Not only does the songwriter want the world to know who God is, he wants us to know, he wants us to remember why he is transcendent, why he is king over all the earth. See, the folks here in our psalm knew a thing or two about the peoples and the nations. Within the context of our psalm, nations and peoples meant all the surrounding countries who were opposed to God's people. It's all the ites, the Canaanites, the, the Zebusites, the, I can't say them all, but you know what they are. <laughs> when Israel sung these words, they would think back to the days of Pharaoh in Egypt, where God saved his people for four, from 400 years of oppression. Or they would remember all the Canaanite kings Joshua had to fight and defeat. Why? Because God defeated them. Or maybe some may have even thought back to the time when God used a lowly brother by the name of Joseph, who rose to power in a foreign land, all to do what? Save his own family who sold him into slavery. There has never been a moment in history too big for God. Oh, but what about now? It would seem as though the world is winning. To some, culture has left God in the dust. Academia says God is an old fairy tale, and science says he's just simply impossible. Every day we wake up and we turn on the TV, we scroll through our phones and we look on social media and we see all the chaos and havoc in our world. We see authorities in the Middle East, in Asia, in Africa, persecuting and killing Christians. We see church shootings, school shootings after school shootings after school shootings. I see those high schoolers every day riddled with grief and trauma and anxiety. According to CNN and Fox, this is a godless world ruled by power, corruption, and money. But what do you say? It's easy to become cynical or even numb towards the world we live in and wonder if it, if it will ever change. I get it. But what is just as concerning is the same worldliness in our own hearts. See, the world doesn't just affect us on the outside, it affects us on the inside too. Persecution and calamities may not be at your doorstep yet, but worldliness is something we battle with every day. The way of the world doesn't have to be obvious or in your face. It has a more subtle and clever way of drawing our affections away from our God. It's very good at lulling us to sleep over time. Then it whispers in your ear and it tells you what you really desire is right in front of you. Think about it. The kingdom of social media tells you that you've got to look, talk, and post a certain way so you would be loved and liked. The marketplace convinces you that you've got to climb this invisible, never-ending ladder or just secure that one last deal and then finally I'll feel important. Finally I'll be accomplished. 
The kingdom of postmodernity and, and Western thought makes you think that your identity, your value, your worth is found in yourself and what you do. You don't need God. You have yourself. Friends, it is very easy to believe that God has lost his potency and power in your life and in the life of others. It doesn't take much to doubt if things will change anytime soon or even at all. What are we to do when, the, when these lies creep in? We shout. We clap. We praise our God. We recall his goodness through our songs. Now, I know we go to a Presbyterian church with some of us that may be humming <laughs> or swaying. But, you, you know, whatever it is for you, I'm sure it'll suffice. God's nature doesn't stop there, though. Yes, he's transcendent, but he's also imminent. You can't have one without the other. They're, they go hand in hand. He's the perfect balance of power and vulnerability. The psalmist tells us in verses 4 and 5 that God has chosen Israel as his dwelling place. It is with his chosen people that God delights in the most. So much so that he literally set up shot right in the middle of them. I will be your God and you will be my people now and forever. That's his promise to us, to his people. Now, if you've read any of the Old Testament, if you're a member of Hope, of hope we, that seems to be all we preach through. The Old Testament, I love it. You'll notice something very quick, very quick. This, this never-ending cycle that the Israelites go through. It's faithfulness, something goes wrong, it's unfaithfulness, they repent, then they do it again. It's, it's faithfulness, something goes wrong, they disobey, they repent, God saves them. On and on and on. See, the same happens in your life, in mine, doesn't it? We forget whose we are. We doubt his love because hardship has come to our door. We call out, Lord, where are you? In the midst of a loved one being told a deadly medical diagnosis, when your marriage is struggling and reconciliation seems to be impossible, or when that addiction is hammering you and it's just that thorn in your flesh, or that anxiety and depression that is crippling, that you can't even get up and get out of the bed. Then here comes the whispers. God doesn't love you. I told you he wasn't here. Oh, but he is. The Apostle John tells us in chapter 1 of his gospel account, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory. God's eminence is not only proven through his son Jesus, but it is most vivid through his son Jesus. He not only sympathizes with you and I in all things, but in fact, he became all things for your sake. Our God, our King in the flesh, God passed through the cosmos of heaven and earth to get to you. He put skin on just like you and I. He put his jacket, his pants, his jays, and he stepped into our world. 
He crossed every border to get to you, to save you from your brokenness and that of this world. No other power, no other God, no philosophy, no system, no government can ever make that claim. Friends, you are not without hope. You are not alone when life comes tumbling down or when insecurities creep in and Jesus died and resurrected. He did so so that he could be as close as possible to you. Think of your favorite song. It's a bad day, you get in a car, you turn on the radio or you switch through your Spotify and you put on that song that you just love. It it takes you out of reality. You've forgotten everything that's been going on. The same is true here. The reason why the psalmist and the Israelites would sing these things is because it would reshape what they were going through. It would remind them of what is true, that what is going on around us, what we see, that's not true. But God's nature, his transcendence, his eminence, what he has done in Christ, that is what's true. We praise him because he's above every name. We praise him because he knows our name. We praise him when we are high and we praise him when we are low. But there's one more reason why we praise him, as the psalmist tells us. We praise God so that our neighbors could hear. Finally, let's look at the nature of his kingdom. In verse 9, we see interesting language like the princes of the peoples gather and the shields of the earth belong to God. The psalmist is describing the nature of his coming kingdom. He's letting us in on what this reality would be like, what it would look like, what it would feel like. And if God is king over the earth, then that can only mean one thing. His kingdom is going to reflect this earth. It's going to reflect this city. Let me put it this way. His kingdom would look like a United Nations convoy, an Eastern Kentucky flea market, and TD's lounge all in one. It will have a myriad of folks. It will be filled with folks we turn our nose up to. It'll be filled with that family you say, ah, they shouldn't be in my neighborhood. It'll be filled with folks who live on the bad side of town. See, the nature of God's kingdom doesn't discriminate. It doesn't stereotype. It doesn't classify. It doesn't marginalize. This kingdom, this coming kingdom, is for those who are poor in spirit, for those who are downtrodden, for those who are needy, the least of these. And the only prerequisite to get into this kingdom is a love for God. That's all you got to do. It doesn't matter what tax bracket you live in, what zip code you live in, what kind of hair you got, what color is your skin, how many degrees you have or no degrees. You love God, 
You are his people. See, it was this kind of God and kingdom that Dr. King was talking about in his speech. He understood who reigned supreme on earth and what that meant for people like him. See, his situation was a little less light because he knew what was on the other side. He was captivated by a vision that was promised. He was incapable, excuse me, he, was, he knew God was incapable of bouncing checks. Anything God said had to come true. But here's the kicker. Here's what's really good. While we wait for God's kingdom to come, it rains right now. How so, you ask? It rains because we have his church. God has instituted you to bring this message to our city. God has instituted the church of past and present with all power and authority to be that kingdom on earth right now. Who has the keys to the kingdom? The church. Therefore, you have the means to bring this kingdom to this city, to your neighbor, through your worship, through your prayer, through your love for your neighbor. You have his spirit which enables you to bring the kingdom of heaven to Chevy Chase, to Southland, to Castlewood, to Limestone, to Loudon, even to right outside this door. God has given us that ability. So let us not forget the type of king we serve and praise and what's ahead of us in the type of kingdom he has coming and our ability and responsibility right now in the meantime. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we thank you for your word. We just ask that you would send your spirit to change and transform our hearts to be better worshipers and better lovers of your people. Amen.